Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is March 13th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the Editor-in-Chief of the Weekly Standard, Steve Hayes, on an awfully busy news day. How are you? As, as every day is these days, an awfully busy news day. All right, I want to back into the substance a little bit. I am fascinated by the back and forth about how Donald Trump fired Rex Tillerson. Uh, there are some people spinning that he was told last Friday, uh, others suggesting that he was completely blindsided, that he was fired via tweet. You you, you have a view? You have a team you want to pick there? Well, I mean, if, if you look at the statement that was put out by the State Department, they certainly suggest that this was a surprise. And it would be consistent with what we've heard um, in other instances. I mean, this is sort of how Donald Trump operates. Remember when John Kelly was named chief of staff? Uh, Trump never actually made the offer to John Kelly to be chief of staff. He had had some vague conversations about it, and he had had a conversation with Reince Priebus about no longer being chief of staff, but there was never the actual offer in the sort of traditional sense. So this is how Trump op- operates a lot, and and we've heard other instances where he's uh, where people have been let go without having had a, a big exit interview with Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, the uh, you, you I think you tweeted the out the State Department uh, statement as stunning. It is stunning when the when the government, you know, the the agency puts out a statement that now nah, he hasn't talked to Trump and he has no idea uh, why he was fired. We'll get to that. And then, of course, the, the the first speculation was it was because he called the president a moron. You saw that he's the president's walking out <laughs> Thousand reporters are saying, "Is it because he called you a moron?" Yeah. So at some point, reporters are going to say to Rex Tillerson, "Okay, now are you freed? Did you actually say it?" But again, sort of shorthand for the fact that uh, Donald Trump and Rex Tillerson never really hit it off. They didn't. They didn't hit it off. And and look, I mean, the the moron comment, the alleged moron comment, was was several months ago. Um, I'm not sure that that was the the triggering factor here. But I do think that this is a plan that had been in the works for quite some time, even as Donald Trump publicly um, suggested that it wasn't. I mean, remember Called it fake news. Yeah. He, he was tweeting about this in early December after the, this plan first surfaced in a, in a number of news reports. Those news reports were accurate. This was something that had been talked about at some length with the president and, and with the, the players involved. The original, um, plan was to have Tom Cotton go to the CIA when mm-hmm. Mike Pompeo moved over to the State Department. I think the, the president opted to pick Gina Haspel, Pompeo's number two at the CIA, rather than Cotton, in part because I, I think there was a lesson learned in Alabama um, and, and the prospect of having a, a potentially safe red seat occupied by a very um, close legislative ally of the president in Tom hmm. Cotton suddenly be an open seat was something that the president wasn't uh, wasn't eager to, to test. Well, and, and plus Tom Cotton has been a very loyal uh, supporter of the administration in the Senate. So you mentioned that that uh, the Moran comment was not the triggering event. We don't know whether or not the the comments about uh, Russia uh, poisoning a spy might have been a triggering event. Do you, so what what are you hearing? What is, what is your your gut sense about why today why he pulled the trigger? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, you know, why today as opposed to Friday or as opposed to last Tuesday, but this was common. Uh, Trump thinks the world of Mike Pompeo. Uh, they've developed a very close relationship uh, over the 16 months that uh, that they've been working together. Uh, Pompeo 
remember, was originally chosen as CIA director. The president first talked to Devin Nunes about being CIA director, and, and Nunes and others recommended oh, Mike Pompeo um, instead. And, and Trump didn't know Pompeo at all, but Pompeo came to the CIA, came to the Trump administration, quickly won over Donald Trump, and, and most interestingly, I think, quickly won over the CIA, won over the, the, the CIA bureaucracy. And, and the fact that Pompeo could do that, I think, suggests uh, just how smart he is. I mean, think about it. Donald Trump goes to the CIA in the early days of his administration or just before the administration, and he he attacks the intelligence community at the CIA. Um, Mike Pompeo goes into that environment and has to get the CIA bureaucracy, skeptical, I would say, often of Republicans, but skeptical in particular of this Republican president. And Pompeo wins them over. One of the ways that he won them over was by choosing Gina Haspel as his number two, as his deputy. Haspel had been involved in, in the enhanced interrogation program. This was something that Democrats made Democrats very skeptical of her. Um, there was We're going to be hearing a lot about that, I'm guessing, in the next few, uh, next few days. Absolutely. It will be the, the main, I think, uh, talking point or criticism that we get from Democrats. But Pompeo wanted Haspel. He had met her um, when she was uh, a chief of station overseas and had liked her when he was uh, in the House and sort of thought she was very accomplished, liked what he had seen from her, handpicked her, brought her to the, to the uh, number two position at the CIA. And she has tremendous experience on the operational side of the agency. So she's not somebody who spent her life sitting at Langley um, behind a computer. She's been out and about. Um, she's was stationed at several different places. Pompeo liked her, brought her in, and knew that he was going to get political grief for having done so. Uh, he knew that the interrogation thing was a potential problem and was prepared to do it. And when he said to her and others who raised this as a, you know, as a concern. And he said, I don't care. She's the best person for the job. Mm. I'm picking her. And I'm willing to take whatever political grief I need to take. That sent a message to the CIA workforce that's a different message than the one that they had gotten under Barack Obama, to be sure, that Mike Pompeo had their back. And for him to have won over the bureaucracy in the way that he did stunned, you know, previous CIA directors, stunned, um, you know, close watchers of, of the CIA uh, because of his ability to to have accomplished that, working under this president. Yeah, interesting contrast with Rex Tillerson, who clearly never did win over the State Department bureaucracy, uh, uh, even though you know he came in as uh, one of the adults in the room. I think it's hard to make the case, and uh, you know there were, you know when he pushed back, I think it was somewhat admirable. But it's hard to make the case that Rex Tillerson was a, a tremendously successful uh, Secretary of State, and, and clearly. You know, leaves behind a State Department with relatively low morale. But let's go talk about one of the big fundamental differences. There, there is some substantive shift here. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the coverage is pointing out that that Mike Pompeo is has been a much stronger critic of the Iran nuclear deal. That there's a real shift here on that particular issue, and this is something you've written extensively about. So you know. Talk about the the signal in uh, the the Trump administration shift on going forward on the the Iran deal. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge change. I think we can't. It's hard to to overstate just how significant a change this is to the Trump national security team. Um, we'll focus on substance first, and then we can focus on the the, the personnel stuff in a minute. I mean, yeah. on substance, you're right. I mean, Mike Pompeo is an Iran hawk. He has been. Uh, 
dating back to his days in Congress. He was in Iran Hawk before he got to Congress. Um, when the Iran deal came up in these uh, internal debates inside the Trump administration, Tillerson was always somebody who said, we can't possibly get out of the deal. We shouldn't even look to get out of the deal. Mr. President, you have to recertify this. And on that, excuse me, he was allied mm-hmm. very closely with James Mattis, Secretary of Defense. Pompeo, who was at the time wearing not a policy hat, but an intelligence hat, would, I think, raise in these discussions uh, points that suggested that Iran wasn't in full compliance with the deal, certainly not in compliance with the spirit of the deal, and uh, I think was an effective uh, uh, interlocutor making the, the point to the president that Iran is not to be trusted in the way that the Obama administration seems so eager to trust them. And remember, it was a trip that Mike Pompeo and Tom Cotton took together uh, as members of Congress that uncovered these side deals uh, cut in Vienna um, that were awfully generous to the Iranians. So Pompeo, he knows the substance of, of Iran policy. He knows the regime. He knows the history. And Donald Trump listens to him. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't listen to many people. Donald Trump listens to Mike Pompeo. And I think that, I don't think Donald Trump cared much what Rex Tillerson said. They fought in public about these policy issues. Trump listens to Mike Pompeo. And I think we'll see a change uh, in that respect. You know, that was uh, one of the things people were were commenting on about the morale at the State Department, that that perhaps with Mike Pompeo coming over, that at least knowing that the agency will be respected or listened to might have a positive effect. You know, it's it's, of course, you know, hard to say at this uh, at this point. Uh, Is there any doubt in your mind that that either of these appointments will be confirmed in the United States Senate? It's a good question. I, I no, I think that they that they'll both eventually be confirmed. Um, I think it's possible that that Gina Haspel even picks up picks up some Democratic support. Not probably not much, but my impression is that she had a good relationship with at least some senior Democrats on the Senate Intelligence. Yeah, Diane Feinstein was not saying critical things about her this morning. No, I mean it's interesting because Feinstein has been so outspoken about the enhanced interrogation programs. But um, you know, I think she has relationships with people like Mark Warner with some other. Uh, senior Democrats uh, with Angus King uh, on the Intelligence Committee. So she might be able to win some support. I think she's widely regarded as a pro's pro. I mean, she knows what she's doing. She's incredibly smart. Um, She's very well respected, uh, certainly inside the intelligence community. And I think if you're a Democrat, you look at the Trump administration, you think about Mm. the other possible intelligence uh, CIA directors. Even if you have concerns about her involvement in the enhanced interrogation program, you have to say, you know, this would be the first female CIA director. Um, This would be somebody who's widely respected inside the community, who's had uh, a a wealth of experience on the operational side. Um, You know, she's and she's a career intelligence professional. I mean, if they're worried about politicization of intelligence, she's not likely to, to be somebody who who presides over that. You know, there's been a lot of commentary about uh, the, the the president being um, unshackled, that this is, you know, Trump, uh, you know, some people call it unglued. Maggie Haberman has had some very interesting tweets this morning from The New York Times. She uh, she wrote about an hour ago, the narrative of Trump unglued is not totally wrong, but misses the reason why he was terrified of the job the first six months and now feels like he has a command of it. So what he's basically saying is, I've got this. I can make the changes he wants. 
And she is also suggesting that people close to the White House, and she's got pretty good sources, as we all know, uh, say they expect more major personnel shifts this week. An effort to rip off the Band-Aid fast on a number of fronts is likely. So uh, does that mean H.L. McMaster is going to go or they're just going to do all this at once? Well, look, I mean, <laughs> predicting what happens in the Trump administration is, uh, is oh. hazardous, as we know. It Having will be said chaotic. that, yeah, I mean, it is. I'm willing, I'm willing to go with that. Look, it is. It is chaos. I mean, and it's silly for the president and for others to pretend like it's not chaos. You know, one of the, his closest advisors and Hope Hicks left with a, a couple weeks ago. Before that, Rob Porter, as staff secretary, one of uh, the most important officials at the White House. If you talk to people who work at the White House, they will say Rob Porter was involved in every policy discussion. He was the one who really set the table for the president in terms of picking policy issues and getting the paperwork in front of him. Um, Gary Cohn leaves. Now you have Rex Tillerson going. That is And, and this that new is guy, this, uh, this, uh, this designated flunky, what's his name, John? How do you pronounce it? McEntee? Yeah, it's, I'm not. You know, it apparently was escorted out the door because he's being investigated for financial impropriety by the Department of Homeland Security. Apparently he was one of those close inner circle type guys. So so that revolving door continues. Well, and, and you've got Jared Kushner uh, being so, scrutinized. You, you have him losing access to the high level intelligence that he's had the privilege to see uh, over the course of the administration so far. So this is an administration in chaos. There's no question about it. And, it, and I think it's silly for them to pretend that it's not. What I think is is interesting looking at these changes is whether this brings some stability to the administration in the form of Mike Pompeo. I mean, it is the case that Donald Trump listens carefully to Mike Pompeo. Uh, I believe that there have been incidents in the past or policy issues in the past where the president has consulted with Pompeo and Pompeo has talked him out of bad decisions or what I would regard as as bad decisions. Uh, I, I think this, if I had to guess, and again, this is a guess, there's been a lot of rumors about H.R. McMaster on shaky ground. I think this shores up McMaster. Now, he could fire McMaster okay. in two days and, and we will look like we don't know what we're talking about. There has been this de facto alliance between Secretary of Defense James Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson since the very beginning of the administration. Mm -hmm. They are often at odds with the president on policy decisions as it relates to national security issues, whether you're talking about the Iran deal, whether you're talking about the approach to North Korea, what have you. H.R. McMaster, I think, is much closer on a policy level to where Mike Pompeo is and will be. And I also think that that's uh, closer to where Donald Trump is on sort of a visceral level, you know, we, we know he's not somebody who spends time with his nose in, in the briefing books. Um, but on a visceral level, Pompeo and, and McMaster, I think, are closer to where um, Donald Trump is than, than his previous national security team. And I think the real effect of this is that it isolates James Mattis um, mm. in a pretty significant way. Um, yeah, you, you, you saw Bill Crystal's tweet uh, this morning. On the one hand, McMaster at the NSA, Pompeo at State, Mattis at Defense, Haley at the UN, and Haspel CIA. And for that matter, Kelly as chief of staff is an excellent foreign policy team. On the other hand, it is Trump who is POTUS. So in terms of stability, you can move around the personnel, but at the heart of this, they still have Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the big question. I think if 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 you are if you've been skeptical of Donald Trump, if you're a conservative, you've been skeptical of Donald Trump. You're troubled by some of the things he says and does. You're worried about him as commander in chief. Um, you know, on the one hand. Mattis and Tillerson worked together to constrain Donald Trump. I mean, there's no doubt about that. They worked with Republicans on Capitol Hill who were worried about Donald Trump. They, you know, planted 
ideas and policy ideas with people on Capitol Hill who would then talk to the president and, and you know, then Madison Tillerson would sort of circle around and reaffirm these policy ideas that they themselves had planted. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's likely that Donald Trump will be less constrained. Um, on the other hand, if he really listens to Mike Pompeo, and if you believe, as I do, that Pompeo has a good head on his shoulders and sound judgment, smart guy, Mike Pompeo has, I think, potentially the opportunity or the ability to talk the president out of making some bad decisions. Um, yeah, like like going to North Korea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, with with Rocket Man, I we would, might have like played out to have Mike Pompeo in the room, who Trump actually listens to, saying, "Hey, wait, really seriously, do you want to do that?" Yeah, I can't imagine what could that go had, wrong. I can't imagine that had Donald Trump consulted with Mike Pompeo and listened to Mike Pompeo. A week ago, he would have agreed to go um, to sit down. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. But. Okay. We have a couple of other things I want to get to in the few minutes we have, but uh, I, I want to give a shout out to uh, one of our uh, our sponsors, the RX Bar. Um, I, you know, I spent the week in, in Hawaii on the, on the road last week, and I got to tell you, I took along a whole box of these RX Bars. They are outstanding. They saved my life. It's a whole food protein bar with made with 100% whole ingredients. Basically, a few years ago, RX Bar called BS on other protein bars. There, there wasn't there wasn't a protein bar out there that wasn't full of artificial crap, you know, fillers and preservatives. Uh, the the RX Bar's core ingredients, you know, are things like eating three, you know, egg whites, two dates, six almonds, and, and they're frankly delicious. They they have eleven different flavors. I stocked up uh, I stocked up on uh, uh, chocolate sea salt. And we have a special offer for the listeners of this podcast for 25% off your first order. Visit rxbar.com slash standard and enter promo code standard. Again, that's rxbar.com backslash standard. Enter promo code standard for 25% uh, off. Um, you know, we have so much in, in the news, Steve. We have the House uh, GOP releasing its memo, basically saying there's nothing to see here. I think the big surprise there was that not only did they declare there was no collusion, but they went so far as to push back on the intelligence community finding, uh, which had been the consensus that the Russians had, in fact, uh, wanted Donald Trump to be elected. My guess is this is just going to set off the same sort of uh, cycle of the Democrats coming up with a pushback. And I think we ought to remind everybody that uh, the House Intelligence Committee is not the main act. It is still the Mueller investigation. So... It is not a matter of case closed, is it? No, it's not. I mean, I, it, it's a, it was a little risky for them to go out without knowing what Bob Mueller's team has collected uh, and make this. So why of, would they have done that? I don't know. It's a great uh, point. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe they just had had gotten to the point where they they had you know looked all over the place for for the kind of collusion that Democrats had suggested at the outset. Of it of this investigation and and having not found it, thought that they were in a position to say, "Hey, look, there there really is no collusion." Um, but you know, Bob Mueller has been investigating this, and and as we've seen from the Mueller investigation, he's managed to to run a pretty tight ship. I don't think we've seen uh, lots of leaks from Mueller's team, complaints from uh, Trump supporters, notwithstanding. And uh, you know he could well have uh, evidence of of something that would fall under the broad heading of collusion. So it just seems to me like they're getting ahead of themselves a little bit. That said, um, you know I don't think we've seen the kind of collusion that the fevered minds of 
Democrats uh, imagined and suggested at the very outset of this, at least private collusion. I mean, you have things like these these meetings in the seashells that were uh, brokered well after the election. You have to ask yourself if if there was ongoing collusion throughout the election season, why was it so necessary to establish this back channel two months after the election? Sort of basic logic questions that I think are challenges to the narrative that Democrats have laid out. We have a good piece, a very skeptical piece uh, in this issue of the Weekly Standard from Eric Felton. Um, going back and rereading the dossier in light of everything that we've learned now, and I think Eric asks some very um, legitimate and, and tough questions for folks who have put a lot of stock in the dossier um, that are very difficult to answer. But going back to your question about why the, the, the committee took that chance without knowing all the evidence, I mean, it's a reminder that we have no idea uh, the scope of the Mueller investigation. It is like looking at a, a handful of pieces of a 500-piece puzzle because almost on a weekly basis we find out that they're raising questions uh, or talking to folks that, that frankly weren't part of the narrative. So I, I, yeah. I personally don't know whether there was collusion. But was there a conspiracy of some kind? Is this going to be messy? Are we going to be talking about money laundering? Uh, how far does this extend? We just don't know. Okay, yes. one last thing. Um, I want to talk about as a flash uh, flashback uh, the editorial in the uh, the, uh, the standard about Hillary Clinton. That Hillary Clinton reminded us what a horrible candidate she was. This uh, this uh, it's kind of gone viral. These comments was she in, she was in India, right? Um, basically trying to explain. Uh, why she lost this election. And it did remind you of of, of, of what a crappy candidate she was. It really did. And I, and I would argue, I mean, it, it was it was really an uncharitable uh, comment you know, beyond the fact that it's, I think, unbecoming for her to continue to make excuses for her having lost this election. Uh, the, 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 I think, slander uh, on people in the middle part of the country, um, you know, your your views on Donald Trump are very well known. My views on Donald yeah. Trump are very well known. But it's just not the case that everybody in the middle of the country is a bigot and therefore voted for Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton. It's just not w- what happened. And you know, there are, there are plenty of people that you and I know know well um, who agree with us probably down the line on issues of conservative principle who voted for Donald Trump simply because he was running against Hillary Clinton. And they did see it as a binary choice in a way that that neither you nor I did. But that's why they voted. And and for her to to, uh, I think, assign all of this support for Donald Trump to rank bigotry. It's just absurd. And, and, well, really, and I also think speaks kind to of the, the kind the, of person the, she is. I mean, I hate to. I try to be pretty charitable in in in, mm-hmm. in my assessments of people, and and you know one of the problems you and I have talked about this before that with our mm-hmm. with our debate national debate these days is you jump to to make condemnations of people as a person. You say this person isn't just wrong; he or she is evil. But I mean, what does this say about what kind of a person Hillary Clinton is? I th- I, I really am disgusted by the whole. By the whole there, thing. There's a great line in in the editorial that quotes uh, Everett Dirksen uh, su- suggesting to uh, to Howard Baker that uh, you know s- sometimes you ought to indulge the luxury of the unexpressed thought. I, I, yes, I'm, I'm paraphrasing yes. that. But at a certain point, you might want to say to Hillary, whatever going on in your head, you you might want to think about it before you actually say it. Because it wasn't just the bigotry; it was also the the the, the productive, successful part of the country voted for me. Basically, the losers voted yeah. for Donald Trump, which 
really, you know, explain, you know, I was uh, I was at the T- Tucson Book Fair uh, the last couple of days and I was on a panel uh, with a fellow cheesehead, a UW-Madison professor named uh, Kathy Kramer, who's written a book about the politics of resentment. And what really struck me was, and she may, really tried to make the point um, to progressives, that rather than engaging in this kind of rhetoric, maybe just work on your listening skills a little yeah. bit more, go and talk to some of these folks and find out what it was that they resented, what it was that they saw, how they felt that they were disrespected, how they they really did feel um, that uh, society was no longer playing by the same rules. Because if they don't listen to those folks, then you're going to have more comments like Hillary's and more of this attitude from the Democrats, and it will repeat itself. Yes. Um, and she was actually asked at this very, very, very liberal gathering, basically the Hillary th- thesis that, well, you know, weren't most of these people just a bunch of redneck bigots? And she really pushed back and said, you know, it's way more complicated. I mean, you know, clearly there were some cards played. Yeah. But to see it that way basically shuts yourself off from a huge segment of the electorate. And I think the the, the point in the editorial that's really important is that it's not just that Hillary says these things, that probably a majority of Democrats are, would, would, would ratify her 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 uh, point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think what it says, I mean, you have this, you have her comments about the deplorables. There there are comments from Hillary, from people who supported her, from people who worked for her, other Democrats, that have more or less made this argument. And I think what it what it suggests is that this is what they truly believe. You know, th- so. th- to the extent that they t- talk about other things or they cite other other reasons, that's sort of subterfuge. I mean, what what Hillary Clinton really believes is is that these people in the middle of the country, where by the way, you know, at one point she came from, she came from Illinois, um, are these sort of backwards rubes, and that's the only way to explain why they didn't vote for her. There are lots of explanations as to why they wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And the fact that she still can't see that, again, I think speaks to to a a kind of arrogance that is really almost jaw-dropping to behold this far after her loss. But hardly breaking news when it comes to Hillary Rodham no, exactly. uh, Clinton. Exactly. Well, on tomorrow's pod- podcast, of course, we'll, we'll be so much smarter because we'll know what happened in the special election in Pennsylvania, which, of course, we will overanalyze. Uh, although I did think it was interesting that, uh, that Donald Trump made a move that pretty much guarantees that the results in Pennsylvania will not be dominating the news cycle. Stephen Hayes, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. We'll be doing this again tomorrow.